Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight we have a great show lined up with uh, Roger Stahl from the film and book Militainment Incorporated. Um, just a couple of heads up, uh, we actually have a lot of great shows lined up in the next four days. Uh, uh, been putting up individual threads about them on the Zeitgeist Movement forums. Uh, I've also posted about them on Facebook, uh, but you can look forward to what we have lined up is on Monday, I have um, Frank Dorrell, who's uh, one of the publishers behind the book Addicted to War. Uh, we also have the uh, Sam Bazo, the filmmaker from the film uh, World Water Wars, Blue Gold World Water, Water Wars, great documentary about the state of our water supply. Um, that was... Uh, narrated by, I think it was yeah, McDowell. Oh, I'm going to say that name wrong. But in any case, uh, he was in Star Trek, a couple of other films, but the, not the person who's coming on, obviously, but the, having his voice narrate a film that was activist-oriented was interesting. I'm also going to have uh, the Energy Action Coalition. Uh, and in addition to that, I just got word that it looks like I'll be having the filmmaker from The Future of Food will be on in a very soon an episode, hopefully sometime this next week. So we've got an exciting week lined up. Um, I'm also, as always, uh, still struggling for the donation front. Anybody who can help me out would be, would be highly appreciated. I'm still trying to squeeze together some money. You're going to be getting more of the um, Zeitgeist TV stuff out of me, but I have a suspicion that something I am installing when I get ready to run Zeitgeist TV is the cause of the blue screen of death problem that I've been having, which is the reason that I've been having trouble is that I've and getting requests that people want more guests and um, you know less book reading, so I've been working on trying to get more guests. But you know it would be very embarrassing to have to end a show because of a blue screen of death. Um, but all of that said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce my um, co-host tonight and our guest. I'm going to start with my co-host who uh, hates introducing himself, so he's probably just going to say hi. I'm Chibi. So Chibi, introduce yourself. Oh, hi, I'm. I guess I got to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, most of my listeners have been listening for a long time. I obviously know who Chibi is. And um, also, as I said earlier, uh, Mr. Stahl, uh, please uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Hi. Um, my name is Roger Stahl. I'm a, an associate professor at the University of Georgia. And uh, I study rhetoric and media studies for the most part. And uh, I appreciate you having me on your show, uh, first things first. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you mentioned, uh, I suppose, why I'm here. I, I made a film in, in 2007 called Militainment, Inc., uh, which was sort of a critical look at the military entertainment complex, for lack of a better term, uh, the military Nintendo complex, as it's been called, or just simply militainment. Um, and then uh, close on the heels of that project uh, was a more academically oriented book uh, uh, by the same name and on similar subjects, but going into more of an esoteric look at the history of this relationship uh, between the military and the entertainment industries. And that's, uh, you know, I have to say, uh, for those of you who want to see his film, um, I do have a link to it on TV and vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, but uh, there is a much better version of it if you get to see the full version, um, and I have to say it was definitely worth it. Uh, so be sure to check out his film and his book. Um, I thought I had a link to the book on my show. I don't know if that came up or not. 
Um, the Amazon thing doesn't always work right. But um, I'd actually prefer, though, um, if you want to give them, is there like a better way they can get your book so we don't have to cut Amazon in? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. They're selling it almost at every uh, retail bookseller that I, you know, major one that I can think of. So if you can avoid Amazon, that's pretty easy to do, I think. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I know so some of these activist books, they don't get as much coverage as they really deserve, so that's why I was curious. But um, and, uh, that being said, um, I'm actually looking forward to this. I went back and you know rewatched the film in its full version that you gave me, and uh, it actually, Chibi, you were one of the people who recommended it to me earlier. Um, the the first thing, and I, I just some of the parts, like I actually just re-went over, and uh, they're really hilarious, just the various ways that the, the media spins things, and you know, how one is obviously in bed with the other when it comes to this sort of stuff. Now, I got to ask you, I mean, do you think, I mean, where do you think this comes from? Do you think it's, uh, you know, like military industrial complex, like influence on the media? Like, are there corporations that are buying interest in the media? Or is it just the media thinking to themselves, oh, well, we can make a lot of money if we cover this war thing, so let's do it? Well, it's all of those things. Um, you know, increasingly, I think, um, the entertainment industries and also tech enterprises are finding that war sells um, and that if they can strike deals with the military, then they can take that aspect of war that is very exciting, very kind of, oh, um, the, the aspect that uh, sells quite well and makes for good TV and also good video games, good toys, and a number of other things. And if they can strike the right deal, um, then, you know, uh, it's uh, it's a win-win situation for you know media companies and the military, but uh, unfortunately, there's some hidden costs uh, behind the scenes, especially in terms of you know uh, the citizen and what kind of news we are getting, what sorts of representations of war in the military we are getting as citizens. So um, you know, to answer your question, uh, I think if we are looking for a center. Um, it's hard to find one. Uh, the best way to look at the phenomenon of militainment or the military-industrial complex is to look at it systemically and understand that there's a government element, uh, there are public relations elements, there are corporate elements and profit motives involved, um, and uh, they have formed a sort of uh, mutually self-reinforcing complex of interests. Um, but, you know, for the most part, when we you know look at the last 50 years or something like that, um, we see an increasing uh, prevalence of media in everyday U.S. citizens' lives, mm -hmm. um, an increasing prevalence of the screen, uh, increasing prevalence of, of television. You know, of course, the internet at the end of the century, um, and. Um, and increasing, I think, corporate interest and uh, influence as well. Um, so, you know, I probably argue that after World War II, uh, the locus, and I think Eisenhower said this really well, the locus of power moved from, oh, government institutions that, you know, we would associate with traditional propaganda to corporate institutions, uh, which, uh, you know, most of the main media outlets that we can name serve as, you know, mouthpieces to these big corporate institutions. Um, so if you were looking for like a center of power, uh, an organizing principle, 
um, I would probably argue that it's uh, the increasing corporatization of the state, um, a corporate-driven military, uh, corporate-driven propaganda system, um, corporatism almost on every front. And that's, you know, that's basically something we, we talk about here on the show all the time because, you know, uh, uh, the fact that we, you know, in the Zeitgeist movement, we deal with issues that have to do with the profit structure and the capitalist structure of things and how when you have a profit motive in something, inevitably it's going to get corrupted. Um, and I, I feel that, you know, it, it, with the media particularly, you see this a lot, uh, you know, films such as Outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's War, War on Journalism, uh, Orwell rolls in his grade, both really good documentaries on this subject, and obviously we have Militainment. Um, and uh, have you seen those other two films? Yeah, I have actually seen both of them. Yeah. Good. So, uh, was there anything in particular you would say, like, I mean, did, did you see those films before you did your film? Do they have any impact on anything you were deciding to do? As, you know, as I was making the film, those came out. I think both of those are around 2004. And so uh, sort of the term of this film had been you know, taking root a little bit during that period, and I had to put it on hold for a while. But I was collecting all this stuff from, you know, the uh, build-up to the Iraq invasion and the uh, immediate aftermath, and uh, then had to sort of put it on, sh on the shelf for a while. So the, those, you know, that wave of, Critical documentaries definitely at the time informed how I was thinking about things, and and uh, you know I hope I hope that I contributed to that conversation with uh, the uh, humble and meager offering that um, that I put together in Militainment Inc. Yeah, I have to say um, honestly, it was it was really well done, and um, uh, overall, especially your use of the actual clips, I think it's a reason why lead people should probably read the book and watch the film at the same time. And a lot of it actually also reminded me of a book that I've read on my show in the past, uh, written at least in part by a friend of mine, uh, Senator Mike Gravel. You, know, you, may, you may remember him from the previous presidential debates, but uh, he wrote a book called The Kingmakers, and it talked a lot about the power of the media and how they spun things. And I could hear his words in the back of my head when you were doing that little expose on the, on the statue of Saddam that was coming down. And uh, he, like, described in detail, like, what was actually going on on the ground in his book. And he was talking about how it really wasn't that many people. And they just kept, you know, moving that camera angle to make it look like there was this giant crowd of people taking down this statue when most people in Iraq really didn't care. Um, you know, and how they just they structured it to be exactly that, that instant history that you talk about in your film. You know, that it really wasn't that big a deal. I mean, it was just some, it, the amount of vandalism. I don't really think most of those people really cared too much about it. And it's not to say that people didn't dislike Saddam. They did. But it's just we kind of turned it into this amazing thing, you know, like and compared it to toppling the Berlin Wall and, you know, uh, maybe taking down statues or, or Nazi symbols during World War II. It's, it was really an attempt to try to make a, a big tent thing. And that's why the, the, you know, they said it was a PSYOP or, you know, the people involved with military intelligence were involved, like there was some kind of, uh, you know, psychological impact that they were looking for. And it's now every time I, I see that, that thing come down on television, I just can't help but laugh because of how much BS is involved. You know, it's, it, it's really troubling to me that uh, people, you know, watch this stuff and they believe it. Um, and, you know, that's, it's actually, uh, did you, I mean, have you heard any further developments on that part of the story or anything you want to comment on that? 
Well, I don't think it has developed further. And I think it sort of fell off the radar and, you know, I suppose merited no further comment among, you know, the, the folks who orchestrated that event. But, you know, in one sense, it's the closest that war came to constructing a moment of what we would recognize as classic propaganda. Um, but also, uh, you know, this wasn't just, uh, you know, a propaganda film or a poster or something like that. This is a real-time event that, you know, was broadcast all over the world live. And, you know, th the fact that, you know, you bring up that it was called in some of the military documents a psychological operations event. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, that's battlefield terminology for, uh, in essence, a weapons system. You know, psychological operations is meant to operate in the same way as a weapon would on the battlefield. Right. Um, uh, which is interesting because, uh, you know, they didn't call it propaganda. They didn't call it, you know, a, a pseudo event or, um, you know, construction for the f home front audience. You know, they were calling it a psychological operation, uh, which kind of tells us that very little distinction is being made, at least in terms of that event, between... Uh, the Iraqi public, you know, the uh, government uh, that was you know, still holding on by a thread, um, uh, the Iraqi government that was uh, operating at that time in Iraq, and that was the object of that statue event in as much as the home front audience back in the United States was an object of that, and also, you know, probably Europe as well. So, you know, you have these multiple fractured audiences. One is battlefield, one is home front, one is maybe a kind of a tertiary European audience. And, um, you know, this event comes together and speaks to these multiple audiences at the same time in a language um, that is very much sort of weaponized. Um, and it, I think it kind of speaks to the fact that we're not being so much propagandized as a home front audience anymore, uh, but, you know, and a lot of the military literature reflects this, uh, but the home front is itself considered a battlefield theater of operations, uh, such that, you know, a psychological operation uh, operates in much the same way with uh, some of the same desired effects on the battlefield as it does here on this battlefield on this coast <laughs> right. across the Atlantic, um, which, uh, you know, tells us something about how the military has uh, changed its regard for um, the citizen in the United States, I think. Absolutely. Now, Chibi, did you want to pipe in here with anything? Any observations that you had about what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, well, when you talk about the psychological part of the warfare, I was, I was wondering, have you read uh, Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine? And she, she talks a lot about, like, Donald Rumsfeld and the Chicago Boys in a a lot of different things that, that might have, I guess, added to that effect, where they really try and psychologically have an impact with war and ec economics combined. Yeah, I know I'm familiar with her thesis, and um, I haven't read the book straight through, but I've read, you know, a number of um, excerpts and, and essays um, in various places. Um, but yeah, she's very much tuned into the uh, sort of immaterial aspect of, of war, um, and you know the fact that it's 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 not only immaterial, but it's um, it works on an economic plane as well. That um, 
to be a profound psychological shift for these, you know, more, I guess, material and kinetic forms of control to move in. So, you know, that could be either shock and awe in Baghdad, or it could be a tsunami in the Indian Ocean. Right. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, when we were talking about shock and awe, and, it, you know, watching those film clips really took me back to, you know, around that time. And, you know, I remember how different I was back then, you know, somebody who actually believed at least the majority of what I saw in the news, you know, and it, it really took me uh, to a different time in my life when I was really under the effects of that. And we talked about this, you know, off the air before the show, but uh, I had another moment, and we can, we can get into this part of the topic, too, is like when you militarize your children. Um, I was watching this really old film because it's something I've kind of made a, a habit of doing now as I go back and I watch the films that I used to watch when I was, kid, when I was a child or a teenager. You really learn a lot about yourself when you go back and watch that stuff because you start to think about, wow, this is why I'm attracted to this kind of girl and this is why I'm attracted to, you know, these kinds of situations and this is why I am this kind of person, you know. Um, you, you learn a lot just by going back and watching the stuff that you used to watch as a kid. Well, I watched this old film called The Boy Who Could Fly, something I used to watch when I was, a, like, a really young, I would probably say preteen. And uh, it, one of the characters in the film uh, was, the like, the main character is, like, this young girl. But uh, her younger brother is totally plugged into the G.I. Joe stuff. He wears camouflage all the time. He's got all these G.I. Joe characters. I could even recognize some of them, all their you know, action figures. And, you know, his, his, his big wheel, you know, those plastic tricycles people used to ride around. I know I miss my big wheel. Uh, you know, it was, of course, G.I. Joe or military-oriented. And, you know, I, I remember that because I used to be like that. You know, I wasn't as extreme. I mean, I, I went with Transformers more, honestly. And Transformers, I wouldn't say, makes you militant, although... Also, we pointed out, and we'll, we'll probably end up talking about this as well, as the latest Transformers films, though, are total commercials for the military. But, um, you know, but it occurred to me, you know, back when you were a kid, you know, I remember being subject to all that stuff. And because of it, I wanted to join the military is what I thought I wanted to do with my life. I thought I wanted to be a fighter pilot, you know, and I, I still see it every now and then. You know, like you, you talked about the techno fetishism, and you're really – uh, like, you know, the, the notion that, you know, technology, particularly like in this case, military technology can become a, an object of beauty. And I still catch myself every now and then. I live not far from Selfridge Air Force Base and a plane will fly over and I'll be like, oh, it's an A-10 Warthog or, you know, that's an F-16, you know, and I'll, I'll find my reaction to that military equipment being positive, which is in direct contradiction to my current, you know, way of thinking. That's when you know it's, it's that there's a certain degree of uh, uh, conditioning involved, and you don't think about it because it, it hits you in the subconscious. It's why now I'm so scared of the stuff my kids watch. I'm like, I'm really careful about it. I always like watch all the you know the the, the children's shows that they're watching, and I screen them and stuff just because I don't. And it's not because I want them to be brainwashed towards one group or another. It's because I want them to be free of that stuff. And I think people don't really realize. You know, just how much work they really put into getting you, you know, as, as a kid. And that, of course, linked to the – it reminded me of the same stuff that I remember learning about um, fast food in another documentary. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about fast food and how they market it to kids. 
you know, and how they catch you at that young age and just get you indoctrinated into thinking about it. And, you know, you're like, wow, you know, you just have no idea, you know, that this stuff has such an impact on you until you literally go back and watch it. And, you know, we talked about video games and the directions that they're taking. And, you know, I mean, like, uh, so go ahead and, like, you know, share with me. I know, you you know, you've said you've talked about there have been further developments and all those things. If you want to expound on the things I'm just talking about, about that, go ahead. Well, I grew up in the age of, uh, I was in puberty right as Top Gun came out. So, I, you know, I came out of that theater, you know, with all guns blazing. And uh, sort of, you know, that was such a success, that film, that it spawned all these other, you know, Iron Eagle and Iron Eagle 2 and all these uh, films that were aimed directly at my age group. And my friends and I um, all were going to be fire, fighter pilots. And you, you mentioned, you know, before, that we're the same age, and you know, I you know, can see uh, <laughs> this being replicated um, all over the place. And you know, I, I, I'm not sure if there's anything necessarily wrong um, with viewing military technology as you know something beautiful and awe-inspiring and terrifying. You know, and that when I, you know, th this is some of the most advanced technology on earth. You know, of course, it makes a difference if, you know, when that plane flies overhead, you imagine the, the village next to you being bombed or not. <laughs> um, right. uh, but uh, certainly, you know, we are not conditioned in that way in the United States. Uh, somebody told me the other day that, you know, some kind of a Black Hawk helicopter flew over and he said, um, that's just conditioning. <laughs> right. You know, and they just fly them around to... Uh, Condition us to the coming, you know, militarized uh, martial law state or something like that. I mean, we have. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, and that's what's happening. I live next to uh, an airport, and they they refuel as they come through, and so I see all manner of things like that. Um, but uh, certainly, we have a different um, relationship to military technology here because the bombs aren't falling in our backyard. Yes. Um, and and that seems like a really stupid, uh, obvious comment, but, uh, you know, it's an essential uh, uh, difference, I, I suppose. Um, but, you know, you asked about kids. Uh, it's sort of been a long-standing theme in a lot of critical literature going all the way back to World War One, where, you know, something horrible will happen, like World War One. And someone will come along and write a book about it and try to figure out exactly how um, the population was socialized into sending wave after wave of young men to die, you know, in no man's land between the trenches. And how, you know, uh, people cheered for it, you know, the, the spirit of 1914 and how, you know, nations just erupted with parades when war was declared. Um, how did that happen? Uh, you know, and a lot of people will point to this sort of early socialization. Of, you know, this is when waves and waves of toy soldiers were coming out of Europe. Right. Uh, and, you know, the mechanization of war and uh, mass conscription and everything depends on the mechanization of a kind of large-scale socialization process. Um, and that's true up to the current day, um, too, in, in ways that, as you say, we are not necessarily conscious of until we go back and watch these films later. Right. Um, and I think uh, probably the best example of that. There's a really wonderful book out there by um, Neil Shaheen called Real Bad Arabs. Um, and it's essentially a look at the last hundred years of film or even back further than that. And his task was to find one 
positive depiction of an Arab character, and he can't find one. Um, he can't find a positive depiction of an Arab character. And, you know, a- having read that, just reading that book, I, you know, of course, combed my memory in trying to find one. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a kind of like subterranean, unconscious socialization process that no matter who you are, young or old, you grew up with in the United States and probably in Great Britain, too, uh, because of our historical relationship to the natural resources in that area and the fact that, you know, those resources demanded um, that imperial powers move in and uh, and a kind of complex of, um, of propaganda had to uh, um, support that as well. Right. And that's why we get this history of representation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting exercise to look back and try to understand, you know, where... <laughs> And sometimes we can't do it unless someone else draws our attention to it, like Neil Shaheen. Mm-hmm. Um, but where our conceptions of what war is like come from, because um, very few of us have experienced it directly, and you know, maybe a few more have experienced it indirectly through family members and whatnot. Um, but uh, this is certainly the, the case in the United States. Uh, one more thing before. Sure. Next question. Um, you know, the, the issue of children is kind of an interesting one. Um, and when people broach the question of the military entertainment complex, automatically, um, you know, the issue of the socialization of, of children comes up. And usually in the form of, um, you know, do war films make kids violent and will they turn into psychopaths and commit Columbine-type acts later in life? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good question, or do video games make kids violent or something like that? Um, and that, that's a long-standing debate and a long-standing question. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, so, I, you know, I'm not running laboratory studies, but many of those have been done and, and fairly cons- with consistent outcomes. Um, people learn behaviors and whatnot. Um, but there's still a lot of debate. Uh, but I, I think the really interesting thing recently is that many of these things that in the past we would have relegated to the socialization of adolescents and children are now sort of entering into um, adult life so that people who have actual political power, people who can vote, people that actually make the decisions um, are, you know, it's not just Iron Eagle aimed at the 12-year-old. It's a kind of newfangled Iron Eagle or Top Gun uh, that is aimed at the 34-year-old. Um, and I think this is probably most apparent in the realm of video games, where the uh, the median age of the, you know, the gamer has uh, crept up, and it's about uh, early 30s, 32, 33 now. Uh, so it's hitting right in the middle of the spectrum, and right at right in the middle of those who uh, can actually affect the world through you know our system of representation. Um, and, and other ways. So, you know, suddenly we're, we're in a place where we're not just worried about our kids and how violent they are, but, you know, uh, we're worried about, like, the quality of the citizen. Can we, can we make decisions about other people's lives halfway around the planet? Um, 
or are we sort of uh, being entertained while following the script that Donald Rumsfeld has written for us? Um, so I think this is a, a new question that has arisen since the first Gulf War, since the early 90s. You know, that's uh, it's interesting. You know, you, you talked about the, the way that Arabs are depicted, and I, I see a lot of this also in religion, uh, in the extreme Christian right. Uh, it's, it's like they're trying to pave the way for a new crusade mentality. Uh, and ironically, um, I, it, when you, the, the ones that came to my mind, the only positive uh, depictions of Arabs that I can think of, um, one of them was in Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, the Arabs were actually, you know, depicted in a way that I feel was uh, at least reasonable, and they were trying to point out that, you know, there were humans on both sides. And then uh, the other depiction was not an American film. It's a European film called Arn the Templar. Um, and uh, in that film, Saladin is, you know, basically depicted the way that he historically supposed to be depicted, which is that he was kind of a, you know, he was a, a well-mannered man, that he was chivalrous, and that in fact what most people do not know historically is that Saladin actually created a lot of what are later referred to as the, the virtues of knighthood that, you know, European knights followed, that supposedly followed. Very rarely did they actually follow them, but that a lot of notions of chivalry actually came from Saladin, you know, an Arabic knight or its equivalent. But you don't hear about that stuff. You know, um, and I remember in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, next to Kevin Costner, we have uh, the black man, Morgan Freeman, who's being depicted as a Arab. Um, and that character was pretty good. But, uh, it's, but I see what you're talking about. And in most cases, you know, it is kind of like that. And especially now, and it actually frightens me because I – you know, I see the the way that some of these people talk about Islam, and you know, it, I'm I'm not a fan of any religion, but I'm really not a fan of any kind of theocracy or any kind of blending religion with, um, you know, the affairs of state. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, but you know, as far as like the way that you know, it, I I do feel, however, that that you know that they do use religion in their own way to justify things, like when you take. Uh, Sarah Palin saying that the war in Iraq is God's war. I, I'm still stunned that she said that. I thought we were done with that kind of craziness when George Bush was gone. But, um, you know, and then him saying God told him to invade Iraq or whatever. And, you know, it's, and of course that ends up being part of it too. Like, you know, you quoted that uh, in your movie. We talked about this actually, and I'm, I still chuckle when I think about it, that clip from the, from the 700 Club journalist who said, you know, that he had this amazing religious experience when they were attacking Iraq and that he came away that Jesus had told him that Jesus is now the Lord of Iraq. And I was like, wow, I mean, really, are you serious? You know, but, but it was, you know, as you pointed out, you know, there was a different spin, but, you know, in a, and I don't want to get too much on the religion tangent, but it, it seems that they really find ways to hit you, you know, in your own value system. You know, and they find ways to make what they're doing right or correct or justified. And I don't think that they leave religion out of that. I don't think that they leave, you know, anything out of it that they can use as their own tool. And when you talked about Top Gun, there's another interesting thing that, that came out of it is that you don't necessarily, you watch these films and you get this really romanticized idea about things. And, you, you know, it's like, uh, for example, um, um, for example, the, the F-14 Tomcat, uh, like I got this amazing idea that it was just this, you know, wonderful plane. It was so great. I went to an air show once and I watched that thing and I'm like, man, this thing is a slug. I mean, they made a movie about this plane, but you watch it 
you know, you watch this movie and you think this plane is great, but, you know, then I found out the reality of it is that the, the F-14 is, you know, like I said, it's a slug. It's not very maneuverable. The only reason it's good at anything is because it can link up to an AWACS and shoot you with a missile from, you know, a really long distance. And as a result, it's an effective missile platform. But as far as a dogfighter, you know, it's, it's a piece of junk. But you watch these movies and you get these romanticized notions about what, you know, you're going to, you know, what you're going to get out of it if you join the military. You know, um, there was another film, oh, I think it was No End in Sight, but I could be wrong, but it had this, you know, this young boy uh, who was joining the military, and the recruiters, of course, capitalized on all this stuff. So, you know, he's got it in his head that he wants to be, a, you know, a helicopter pilot, and he wants to pilot the new stealth helicopter, and it's pretty obvious that the kid was not very intelligent and that they were taking advantage of him. And the reality is, is he was going to end up, you know, going in there and, you know, he's probably going to end up as a clerk or something. You know, I'm not trying to be mean, but, you know, the reason he wants to join the military is he's seeing these uh, books, or not books, you know, um, movies about, you know, military stuff, and therefore he gets, you know, fascinated by it, but he's probably not going anywhere. You know, it's it, and it, it's so sad to see you know, people's lives taken over by it, you know, and I have met ex-military people who are fine, but I've also met a lot of them that have a really, like when we talk about how they dehumanize other people, you know, you get this attitude that, you know, if you're not, if you've never been in the military, it's, it's almost like they treat you like you're subhuman, like you're, you know, you're not actually a person or a man or whatever. I mean, do you, do you want to comment on that? Well, they're getting, you know, increasingly, uh, sophisticated with those uh, means of um, both kind of uh, desensitizing soldiers to the realities of, uh, you know, where the bullets and the bombs land and also, you know, creating group cohesion and, and uh, sort of manufacturing the perfect weapon system out of human bodies. Um, and, and, you know, this is kind of a, this is, this is a complex question, I think, because, um, you know, at least for me, the uh, the military is a valuable thing <laughs> um, that you know we have uh, a, a strong defense in place um, you know I'm not saying that the kind of defense that requires half of the federal budget or anything like that what we have now but a, you know a reasonable defense in, in place um, I mean that's that seems to me a, a valuable thing so you know recruitment uh, is a valuable thing manufacturing soldiers even though it has, you know, some horrific fallout to some degree um, in terms of, you know, people's individual lives sometimes, um, you know, it seems to be a, a valuable thing uh, to a degree. Um, you know, so I, I, I can't say, uh, you know, categorically uh, come out against recruitment or something like that. And, you know, there's all kinds of, like, problems and economic disparities in the way that recruitment is handled. It, Frankly, you know, it would be, uh, I think, the best possible uh, solution uh, would be a universal uh, conscription, you know, having everybody serve two years in the military. Uh, you know, that would prevent um, these kind of spurious wars where rich people send poor people to battle um, at a moment's notice and for no good reason except to, you know, yeah, gain, that's actually gain, uh, John yeah. Fresco said something very similar to that. He said he thinks that war would slow down quite a bit if you made sure that absolutely everybody, as soon as we have a war, 
gets conscripted and that there's nobody who makes any profit off of it, that he doesn't think that war would really go too far because yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to sit around on your yacht collecting your, your profits and uh, thinking to yourself, well, it's just some welfare moms losing their kids. I don't care about that, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, uh, uh, I'm sorry, what was that, Chini? I said, what would that mean for pacifist, uh, pacifism, though? I, I guess there wouldn't be any place in society for those then. You know, yeah. everybody fight. Uh. Well, I mean, that would, uh, yeah, it, it, it's possible there could be a conscientious objector status as there was in Vietnam. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that would be a definite casualty of universal conscription. Um, something that you mentioned, Neil, um, you know, reminds me of, of Noam Chomsky, and he really has an elegant way of putting it, which is, you know, that war and Noam Chomsky really does almost always analyze things in economic terms. The war is a transfer of wealth. It's a transfer of wealth in the taking of resources, which is the obvious one. But it's a transfer of wealth in terms of, you know, the bodies used, which are usually from the lower socioeconomic class. And it's a transfer of wealth in terms of taxes. You take, uh, you know, a, a, the income tax or you know, federal taxes of all kinds and uh, extract them from the citizenry while, you know, feeding them a, a line about what, you know, the war is about. And you apply that to a military that is essentially being used to perform a hostile takeover overseas of some territory or some set of resources or some strategic position. So, yeah, transfer of wealth all the way around. You know, the tax on military, though, doesn't really come out of, say, an income tax or anything like that. It's nothing you see directly. It's it's inflation down the road that, that everybody, I mean, everybody does pay for it, but it's not like the money you give in the taxes this year goes to fund the war because they don't have that money. There's not enough. There would never be enough based on the amount of taxes we pay. It's the money that gets printed to fund war leads to huge inflation. You know, wars are inflationary, and so... Of course, we all suffer then because of the increase in the cost of living and so on. I just yeah. thought I'd... Been. A good deal of it is debt right now, especially with, you know, these huge appropriations for Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, $180 billion a year on top of, you know, the $500 billion that is uh, the regular um, standing army uh, cost. So, yeah, I mean, a good bit of that is, is borrowed money. Right. Well, um, you know, to get back on the, the topic, you know, that we were talking about originally, you know, just as regards to the way the media, you know, um, affects things, I think the reason I was bringing up the issues about recruitment is mostly just to be uh, a lot of the, the, the dishonest practices that go into that, you know, um, and in some cases, like we were talking about earlier, you know, you said, like, in your film, Top Gun was, like, considered to be, like, one of the most valuable recruitment films ever, and that, that actually brought up one of my other points that I brought up to you also off the air was, uh, when we talked about like what happened with the film Independence Day, you know, like they because they they looked at it, it was a very patriotic looking film. The military showed a lot of interest in helping them, and uh, they basically because Area 51 was in the script, they 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 pulled back their you know assistance and said, well, we're not going to help you any further. You can keep the footage that we gave you unless you're going to take Area 51 out of the film. Um, James Cameron obviously refused to do that, but. I'm not bringing that up really to talk about Area 51 and so much as just the fact that there is a significant amount of assistance you get from the military if you're willing to feature them 
And I think that's definitely what was going on with the new Transformers films, because in some cases you see more of the military than you do of the robots. Um, you know, and you see also the military doing things that traditionally in Transformers they were never able to do. I mean, in the cartoon, you know, they would constantly try to assist and try to fight the Decepticons, and they would fail miserably. And instead you've got these, you know, Marines going at it, you know, with uh, <laughs> the Decepticons with actually a, a chance of winning. Um, and I'm just, it, the, which, you know, doesn't necessarily bother me in of itself, but, you know, a lot of my friends have told me that they actually, even ones who are not politically active are like, man, this thing is like a freaking commercial for the military, you know, because they're, you know, they're in every other scene and, you know, they're showing off all these, uh, you know, all this equipment and, you know, some of the main characters actually turn into the equipment, you know, um, and I don't think people realize, uh, you know, that, you know, that, the military is well aware of the recruitment af aspect of this, and that's why you see all this stuff in these these films, and the reason that they're willing to help. And I think a large part of that is because of the fact that we don't have a draft, we don't have any form of conscription. So, you know, they result they result to this, you know, or resort to this because that's what they feel they have to do, I suppose. Um, between that and just recruiting, you know, people like Blackwater. Supposedly, you know, Blackwater is also a solution to the well. We don't have to conscript people, so we'll just hire companies like Blackwater. You know, um, you know, did you see any further, you have any comment on that? Well, of all the things that I've, you know, blathered on about uh, in this interview, I, you know, this is the thing that I think is probably the most useful piece of information that, you know, I think everyone ought to be aware of um, in terms of the relationship between the military and Hollywood and, and also other entertainment industries, and that is um, uh, that there is, you know, an office set up to make these transactions. It's called the Hollywood Liaison Office at the Pentagon. It's a public relations uh, uh, entity um, headed by a man named Phil Strubb. There's a wonderful book that came out, now it's about seven years ago, um, by uh, David Robb um, called um, Operation Hollywood. Um, and he's really... Uh, He's a journalist, probably the first person to really take a good look at this relationship. And uh, he basically goes through the documents, um, digs them up, and they haven't been previously looked at in, in depth. But, uh, you know, the, the relationship pretty much goes like this. If you want to make a war movie and you're a producer or you're at a production house, uh, you can't, you know, get your hands on an aircraft carrier, an F-14 Tomcat or, you know, you can't get your hands on newsreel footage and, you know, the proper uniforms and even the kinds of, you know, intelligence for designing military hardware. Um, and the only place you can go, you can't go to the surplus store. You've got to go to the Hollywood liaison office and, you know, pitch your movie to Phil Strubb, who uh, looks at your script and either gives it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and says, Okay, we'll give you an aircraft carrier. It costs a million dollars a day to run. We'll give it to you for a week um, if you give us script oversight rights and doctoring rights. So take a look at the script and change what they want to change. And it could be historical changes. It could be technical changes. Um, but uh, we're going to make uh, the script into something that the Pentagon can approve. Um, and you see, you know, this relationship working out very well in terms of films like Top Gun, Behind Enemy Lines, uh, Pearl Harbor, Transformers 1 and 2, um, all of the upcoming Iron Man, I don't know how many there are going to be, but all the upcoming Iron Man movies are kind of encrusted with uh, military hardware. 
And, you know, these films are doing well, not only because they're blockbusters and very appealing, uh, but they're doing well because they're keeping their, their bottom line um, and they're, they're keeping their overhead very low. Uh, because, you know, essentially these uh, films are being subsidized heavily uh, with set features and intelligence and, and uh, all kinds of um, um, advice um, by the military and by the taxpayer. Um, so, you know, when a producer wants to write a film, um, they're more than likely, it's going to be a war film of any kind, or even just Transformers, they're more than likely to say, well, what's the bang for the buck that we can get here? And uh, can we include military elements? Because, you know, explosions in F-14s are fun to look at. Um, uh, you know, and uh, it essentially has a chilling effect for those who do not want to um, make a film in the way that you know, mimics a recruiting poster. Um, and it really gives a real leg up to people like Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay and the people that have historically been in bed with Hollywood ladies on office and Phil Strub. Uh, so you have this kind of tilting of the field of representation where, you know, the image of war that we get is um, sort of tilted by this money um, in favor of Pentagon uh, types of representations. And, uh, you know, this is a, a transaction that goes on behind the scenes. Producers aren't like getting on Entertainment Tonight and talking about it. Directors aren't, uh, and uh, the Hollywood liaison office is not talking about it publicly usually, um, only when they have to defend it. So uh, the only way that you know as a consumer of war films is you have to wait to the end of the credits, the very end, and you'll probably see something like this, was, this film was made in concert with the generous help of the Air Force. Right. Um, but we see this kind of relationship replicated across, not, you know, not only Hollywood film, but almost every entertainment medium, including sports and toys, reality television, um, cop shows, even anything that represents the CIA. And now even corporations are getting in on the act and thinking, you know, if the if, you know, if Hollywood can do this and pull it off so well, why can't I don't know GE? <laughs> right. Um, so you know, it's it's a form of product placement, if you will, but the product is the military, the product is a version of history that not only helps with future recruiting, but also gives the public a, a version of history that is perhaps more likely uh, to result in voting patterns that authorize huge expenditures on weapon systems, et cetera. You know, and that's, it's interesting is that every now and then a film will come through and I'm like surprised that it got through. But did you watch The Green Zone, for example? Yeah. I um, was really surprised by that film. I'm sitting in the theater going, wow, I, I can't believe this. This is like a big tent film and it's totally like, it was like a dramatization of No End in Sight, the documentary No End in Sight. I just was astonished that they just did a movie that was about, you know, basically it was about, yeah, we were wrong in Iraq. I just, blew me away. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting to watch that evolution because the kinds of things that the Hollywood liaison office is authorizing, like a film like Black Hawk Down, is not the kind of thing that they would have authorized in the 1980s. And so the story is changing. The story, the story that is being authorized is changing. 
Um, it's allowing more of a sort of a personalized story of the embattled soldier who you know maybe doesn't know what he is doing and is really um, having a tough time and watching his buddies get blown away. Um, and so I think there's a recognition on the part of the liaison office that people aren't going to swallow Top Gun anymore. Right. Um, they're going to have, there's got to be a critical edge. And, you know, walking that line, I'm sure, is a difficult thing. But you can kind of trace the narrative as it changes. And it seems to me, this is the kind of thing that I'm studying this person who looks at uh, rhetoric and, and uh, the military, uh, the, the narrative of the story, uh, the official story is changing toward one that um, personalizes the event of war, so takes it out of the political realm and personalizes it and puts it on the back of the embattled soldier. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a character that we both want to be, in a sense. It's a heroic character, but it's also one that we feel sorry for, uh, right. in a sense. So it's a support the troops kind of narrative, uh, a, a sort of POW, MIA kind of narrative that um, maintains a certain amount of credibility because it shows the horrors of war, but at the same time generates enormous pathos for the individual soldier while avoiding at all costs the political ramifications of the decision to go to war. I, I think this is the developing narrative, but um, you know, I, I could be wrong about this. Well, you know, it also made me wonder if maybe there's some just, because there seems to be an activist element that's developing in Hollywood. Um, there's like for every film that I, you know, it's, it's almost as though, you know, people who have, think outside the box, like the Wachowski brothers in particular, putting out films like The Matrix and uh, more specifically V for Vendetta, which is probably one of the most responsible films for the reason that I'm even doing what I'm doing in political activism. It was one of the films that inspired me to think about it. Uh, you know, and then I, uh, I know that they, they point blank, you know, they asked uh, Lucas if he was trying to make some kind of show of like, you know, like a, a, a dichotomy as far as like comparing what was going on in the Bush administration with the evil emperor in his, you know, in his new, episode one through three Star Wars movies, um, it, it makes me wonder if there's some element there that's, that's kind of, you know, acting out. Like, uh, you know, uh, for example, as much as people pick on Matt Damon, I've heard him say some stuff that I, you know, I tend to agree with that was kind of outside of that. And you do get a lot of, you know, like you put up, you know, war protesters in Hollywood, you know, the different actors and stuff that they go after, people like Charlie Sheen. Um, or not, yeah, well, not Charlie Sheen as much as Martin Sheen, but uh, you know, like Martin Sheen actually, uh, he narrated a great film about Vietnam called uh, American Apocalypse. Um, this that film just floored me. I don't I don't even think of Vietnam anywhere near the way I used to. And after I watched that documentary, and you can see that for free on Google as well. But um, you know, that's that's I guess what I was wondering is if you know if you felt maybe that there was some kind of partisanship going on. Maybe some people are thinking they can make a difference with their films. I mean, I went into the green zone expecting to watch a typical, you know, rah-rah military movie, um, and when I came away from it, I just it was kind of like I don't want to say I was let down in any fashion, but it was definitely not what I expected. I walked away from it, you know, as I said earlier, stunned, you know. <laughs> Rather than going, oh, well, that was that was a good movie. But whereas Black Hawk Down, I think you know it really emphasized the the brotherhood aspect in a way that made being a soldier sound appealing. Um, but you know, I guess. But overall, though, I, I'd say particularly in the news, 
um, you know, you, you do get exposed to, like, I was looking at the stuff you're talking about, about the, the soundtracks, the way they present everything, and the, you know, the, the, the dramatizations and the video simulations, and, you know, like, it reminded me of that, actually. It was, I used to watch the show Airwolf when I was a kid, and, you know, how they'd have those animated, you know, like, well, this is the, this is the plane we're fighting, you know, it would show, like, all the specs and all that, and that's what, you know, CNN was doing that for the longest time. And you have some of those video clips in Militainment, you know, where they're bringing up, it's this kind of missile. It has these specifications. And, you know, it is like they are characters in a movie. So, um, but, uh, Chibi, did you have anything to add? Um, well, I didn't know that, although I, um, you know, what Roger was saying about basically subsidizing, uh, cutting off the top for directors and whatnot, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know why I never thought of that before. So it's interesting to learn that it, it's a, that's a really strong way of, of upholding status quo, uh, the way people view war and whatnot. And, and it makes it really hard, on the other hand, for some other director to come along and make a movie that depicts history a little more realistically or whatever, because that means they're going to have to dig it out of their pocket, which is, you know, rarely going to happen. And so... Um, you're right. That, that, I think that's the most interesting thing out of this interview. That uh, I feel like I've learned something from that. Well, good. You know, in the words of South Park, I've learned something today. <laughs> right. At least one thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the reason that I bring Chibi on is because he he watches this stuff as much as I do. So don't take that as an indication that the conversation wasn't interesting. It's just he and I basically spend hours and hours talking about this stuff. So. Um, but that's why, you know, it's like I said, he was one of the people who recommended your film to me, if I remember correctly. And, you know, so overall, you're, you know, it, it's been awesome having you on the show. Um, and I hope in the future, you know, if you ever want to be a consultant on this subject, I'd be happy to bring you on to another show if this subject comes up again. Um, we're down to six minutes left in the show. Um, again, everybody, you know, uh, visit v-radio.org. That's v-radio.org with a minus sign between v and radio. Um, I am looking for donations to get to the, through the rest of the month, and uh, you guys have been great so far with your support. And um, basically now, I guess, uh, if there are any questions, I haven't really gotten any in the chat room, which is unusual. Um, if anybody had anything they wanted to point out, but... Uh, looking at this over, um, no, nothing really sticking out, but, uh, see, private military firms are certainly more viable than standing national militaries, although the impact of corruption is quite high. Um, not sure what the point he was trying to get at, but in any case, um, you know, it's, it's, thank you, you know, thank you for doing the film that you did, um, and I mean, can I ask you, like, uh, what experience prompted you to do it? What experience prompted you to write that book? Well, I was I was studying other things. I've been doing my PhD, and so uh, <laughs> I was studying other things. But then, you know, was so compelled by this abrupt change in in the political mood um, after 9/11, and then and then watching this really astonishing machine going to motion before the 2003 invasion of Iraq and uh, and and kind of um, noticing that, you know, I was a sophomore in high school or something like that when we uh, invaded uh, Iraq the first time in 1991, uh, but noticing that, you know, 
things had uh, things had moved in a decidedly um, <laughs> entertaining direction, I guess. Um, and, right. and the image that really, uh, I guess, hooked me was, uh, you know, I was watching news coverage, and in between the news segments, they would show uh, a, an advertisement for a game called Conflict Desert Storm, which, you know, culminates, this ad culminates in uh, a crosshairs shot of this mustached face Saddam Hussein type character. <laughs> and And so this rhythm of, like, here we go. Are we going to war in two weeks? Uh, you know, and, and these advertisements um, just got me thinking on this subject, and um, and I didn't have a I didn't have a TV at the time. <laughs> right. I had a friend of mine. I gave him a ton of VHS tapes and had him you know just tape hours and hours and and and, uh, um, and, and just uh, started on this track and was doing a lot of like anti-war uh, organizing at Penn State and. Um, it, it's just, you know, it, 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 uh, astonishing and absurd um, at the same time. And, uh, you know, it was really, uh, it really compelled me into both activism and also teasing out the symbolic components of all of this because, you know, evaluation aside, it's an astonishing machine. Uh, you know, not only the equipment that has to, you know, roll into a uh, country halfway around the world to prosecute a war, uh, but, you know, this uh, amazing sudden crystallization of these media outlets, suddenly they're talking the same language, they have the same banners, uh, they're telling the same stories, uh, they're even uh, synced into the same, same kind of time rhythms. And... Uh, I was just so I was just so astonished by that, and I can't say from personal experience that this was uh, similar things were going on during the first Gulf War. But scholars and other people have hinted at some of the same types of machinations, um, but I think they really kicked it into gear. Um, so on just a a purely um, technical level. I, I just thought it was the most interesting thing going. Um, and, of course, it's got this uh, tremendous, tremendously important moral dimension to it as well. Um, so, you know, I, I switched gears and I started to really uh, dive into the literature. And it was, to me, like a rabbit hole that had no end and really uh, touched every aspect of our social and political lives in really profound ways. Um, and I have been kind of studying uh, and been very interested in the subject ever since. And I thought I'd make a film that really displayed the most fascinating aspects of it. Um, let me uh, interrupt you just briefly to tell the live listeners. Um, the live portion of the show is beginning to, it's getting ready to end in about 90 seconds. Um, you can catch the rest of the conversation on archive. There's just a couple more questions I wanted to ask you, Roger, that I, I had forgotten to ask earlier. That are okay. and also to future shows. But um, thank you for tuning in to V Radio. Um, as I said, uh, you can hear the rest of the conversation on archive. Thanks again, and be sure to check out vradio.org, v-radio.org. And um, go ahead and continue with what you were saying, Roger. I think I was done. Oh, okay. Well, the next question I wanted to ask you, and this actually is pertinent because I also got a hold of the filmmaker who made the movie Iran is Not the Problem. Have you watched that film? 
No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, wow, yeah. You, you'd really like it because they point out a lot of the same things that you're talking about that went into the Iraq war are basically going on with Iran. I wanted to ask you, you know, what you thought about that, if you've noticed that pattern. Um, I had actually recognized it also because I watched C-SPAN, and I was watching how virtually all the same things that Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich have been complaining about from the beginning, the things that go into trying to convince people to go to war, you know, that we did in Iraq are happening again with Iran, with respect to Iran. Um, I mean, have you, have you noticed the posturing? I mean, I haven't watched as much news as I did last time, but have you noticed the posturing to try to get us to go into Iran? Yeah, um, you know, the, I think the similar kinds of tools and strategies are being used, uh, but, you know, the landscape, the political landscape is vastly different, uh, you know, just economically. Um, we're in, still in a recession. Um, and, uh, you know, people have sort of uh, bigger problems <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, than, you know, considering Iran's potential nuclear capabilities. Um, and, you know, we are seeing lots of soldiers come home with severe problems. Um, and even on, um, and this has been kind of a consideration for the past six years or so, even on a military level, um, you know, we have presence in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and uh, Iraq, um, and we were pretty much stretched thin. So even on a technical military level, strategically, uh, it would be very difficult to wage the same kind of war. But I think, you know, on a social level, they are kind of stoking the flames in, in typical ways. Um, so there's, there's, of course, the fear appeal, uh, but there's also humanitarian appeal, um, which has been, uh, you know, the intense focus on um, kind of uh, late Eastern Bloc style protests against, you know, what, of course, admittedly is a... Uh, uh, dictatorial government, um, but you know there are all kinds of dictatorial governments. There are all kinds of uh, um, uh, mass protests. Um, you know this is a cyclical thing. I mean these are happening in many of the countries that we um, uh, you know, describe as our allies and we support financially. Um, but you know the intense focus on Iran and its human rights situation. Uh, the uh, way that the uh, Islamist government uh, treats women, et cetera. Um, you know, these are features that are not unique to Iran, but are unique in the sense that we've surrounded them uh, militarily with bases on both sides, and we are preparing the population who is reticent at this point. When I say we, the government and, um, you know, powers that be, are preparing the population for some kind of future military adventure, at least sanctions, um, probably probably long-term economic uh, pressures, and then some sort of uh, um, covert operations, which have been going on since Seymour Hersh, uh, uh, you know, wrote in the New Yorker about them in 2006, 2005. Um, you know, sort of these uh, off-the-record kinds of military ventures are going to be uh, consistently uh, putting the pressure on Iran and uh, trying to, uh, you know, transform that region to something that looks like a pre-Iranian revolution. 
uh, something that's a lot more um, copacetic with uh, our energy interests there. So yeah. Well, that's you know, and it, it actually kind of it, it sometimes it occurs to me that they they take a while to get around to capitalizing on the things that we're talking about. But when you talk about like, human rights violations and all that, that actually reminds me of uh, the fact that you know that you know, I was remembering during the Ron Paul campaign because Hannity was probably one of my favorite uh, um, journalists to hate uh, <laughs> is going after Ron Paul. He's like you know. You don't like it, you know. You're like you're saying it's okay that he gassed the Kurds, he gassed his own people. I don't like that. I think it's immoral, you know. And you know, Ron Paul points out he's like that was like back in the 80s. We didn't do anything about it then, you know. We gave him the gas that he used to gas those people, you know. It's like he was trying to point out that you know it, it, because people have tried to do that too. They're like, well, we got to get rid of the Saddam guy because of all these terrible atrocities he's done, you know, like 10 years ago, which we didn't care about until the oil question was brought in, you know, that's, and it's, that's an example of, I, I think the media gets prepared to lay the foundations. You know, I imagine we'll be saying the same thing in the event that we did invade Iran, um, you know, down the road, uh, you know, well, you know, they, they're, they're terrible to their women. There are all these, you know, various uh, things that have went on. And as you pointed out that it's not unique to Iran is actually a very excellent point um, because, um, there, there's stuff like that going on all over the world, and we don't seem to care about it unless there's some kind of monetary interest involved. You know, I mean, it's like we, we spend all of this time over there in Iraq and uh, supposedly in Afghanistan to overthrow these, these terrible governments, but we keep dragging our feet about a situation like Darfur, which obviously needs our help. But there's no money in Darfur. It's just a big dry desert. There's nothing there. So, therefore, we don't seem to care about the human rights violations in those countries. Um, and it's it, it's interesting to me, and that's one of the reasons why you know my my political radar went off, so to speak, just from the things that you know my mentor Mike Gravel taught me about this sort of thing. Is that you tend to hear the rumblings of it, you know, well in advance. It's actually what got him back into politics. He was one of the guys who uh, got rid of the draft, and he points out that he's glad that he did now because um, you know that that's pretty much what it would require to invade Iran. You're correct about that. It's, we could not do it with the amount of people we have right now. It would require either a draft or that we just abandon the theater in Iraq, which I don't think would be strategically sound, or in Afghanistan. Um, but it, it, it definitely feels to me anyway, because you know, that they're trying to prepare us mentally for the possibility that they may have to do it. I mean, another option is they may just be doing this to scare Iran. Maybe they're hoping that Iran will you know, pop back into place you know, uh, but when you take in the, into account those, like the axis, and e axis of evil speech that included um, Iran and South, you know, and North Korea, um, pardon, but, uh, you know, it makes you wonder if that's, if that's on the drawing board, so to speak, or, or on the table for future endeavors. Um, but, you know, if, mm -hmm. go ahead. Well, uh, I was going to comment that um, yeah, it's definitely on the drawing board and, uh, you know, uh, they're definitely throwing the dice in that direction <laughs> of the map. Right. Um, uh, the uh, the problem for uh, strategic planners, uh, influence planners in that area of the world, is that uh, they need to move in before Iran acquires a nuclear weapon, and they might. Um, right. But once they have a nuclear weapon, they have you know essentially veto power over a potential invasion. Um, 
so that's the problem. The problem isn't the nuclear weapon itself or that it may be used, you know, <clears throat> uh, dangerously or something like that. The problem is that we will not be able to move in uh, to Iran and occupy in the same way that we have done with Afghanistan and Iraq. So one more it, situations like Pakistan, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pakistan is a complex situation, but yeah, I mean, as long as the government in Iran holds and they have a nuclear weapon, uh, then that's veto power. <laughs> Basically, have to put up with them forever at that point. And it's, I think it's probably why North Korea was trying to cruise for one or make it look like maybe they have one. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, that but I guess it's just, you know, I remember how these things get spun. And, you know, Iran is not the problem was a very good film. Uh, I just as I said, I got a hold of their filmmaker and they went basically in the same direction of pointing out that the media seems to be moving in a direction to convince the American people that we need to invade Iran. Um, and, uh, you know, I know other things that they've talked about, you know, Mike Gravel thought for the longest time, you know, he's like when they say things like there's nothing off the table with respects to Iran, he felt that meant a nuclear strike, you know, that we could in theory, you know, use tactical nuclear weapons on them or even that we'll hint at it, maybe we'll save a rattle with it. But, you know, it just, I don't know, I just, I generally think, that, you know, as you said, the machine, so to speak, if, if they're pushing on something, it probably means they have something in mind. Um, and, uh, but anyway, um, see, that was, you know, that was the major, the first question. I know I had another one. I'm going to see if I can try to remember it. <laughs> in the meantime, I'll ask Chibi. You know, hey, Chibi, do you have any comment on anything else we've said so far? My mind is kind of going elsewhere with that. I mean, not elsewhere, but I'm thinking about everything you guys are saying, and I was just kind of thinking about the whole Euro uh, switch for oil trade in Iran and and North Korea and Iraq, and I don't know. I, no, I don't guess I have anything to add. I'm just sort of pondering these issues to myself. No, it's funny that you bring that up, actually. In another brief documentary called Iraq Conspiracy, they talked about the fact that uh, it was likely that um, we invaded Iraq. It was actually a film made by British people, but um, we invaded Iraq because uh, Saddam Hussein was like, well, I can't defeat you militarily, but I could switch to the euro to sell my oil. And Right. I think that is a reason, not the reason, but a, I, I think that is a reason, and I think it, it's very relevant with Iran as well. I mean, they still have decent amount of oil reserves that could be a reason as well that you know if we can control that oil but I don't think we'd have a need to go that far if they weren't threatening to dump the, the US dollar which the more countries that do that if OPEC can, I mean well anyways yeah you already know the story right for sure did you have any comment on that before I ask the question that I just remembered <laughs> Well, the competitors for our oil in Iran and also, you know, in Africa are uh, China and uh, Russia. Um, you mentioned Darfur before. I think one of the reasons that we do know about Darfur is because someone else is um, perpetuating that atrocity. This is uh, Chinese and uh, Russian influence in that area to clear the land uh, to uh, uh, prospect uh, for oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why it is, it hasn't been used to demonize those countries, but it's one of the reasons why it's on the news. I, I don't think that it would be as much of a news item had, you know, these sorts of um, genocidal activities been precipitated by U.S. influence instead. I see what you mean. I don't think it's on the news as much as it should be. Uh, go ahead, Judy. 
I just said certainly not. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, are you a teacher, or were you just were you just getting your PhD together? Uh, I, I I got my PhD in uh, 2004, 2005, something like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at the time I was writing the book and and also putting together the movie. I was I was uh, working on a PhD. But I, for the last six years, I've been a professor here at the University of Georgia. Yeah, that's what I remembered. I was curious if any of this has impacted you as a teacher. Like, have you shared any of this with your students? They know about your book. Yeah, I teach a class called Rhetoric and Popular Culture, where one of the weeks we focus on uh, violence and uh, military political issues and how that is reflected in popular culture. And I teach some special topics classes in media and war, both on the undergraduate and graduate levels. So yeah, it's definitely sort of filtering into the classroom. And I've found that student responses to some of this material have, you know, really changed with the political zeitgeist, if you will, over the past, uh, you know, 10 years or so that I've been addressing the issue in the classroom. Well, that's actually great that we have a teacher in a position to do that. Um, there's actually something I was learning from a, a member of the Green Party who's in my local zeitgeist chapter is he said that um, uh, the Republicans got people involved in education to start to switch people over to their methods of thinking. Um, and it, it occurred to me there's just so many people that it's like I already look at this now. It's like I remember when I came out of school thinking, and I didn't go to college, but um, I, I look at my own children and how I would educate them. And I have a feeling that, you know, once they get to be a teenager, you know, they're going to be seeing films like Militainment, uh, you know, films that really get you thinking. And then I, I wonder, you know, what kind of childhood they're going to have, though, because they're going to be surrounded by people who still believe all that stuff, like, is real. Um, I imagine it's got to be difficult. I mean, do you ever get any, I mean, because, like, you, you're really touching on some stuff that I think some people are really emotionally attached to. you get any hate mail or um, any maltreatment for you exposing these things that people almost feel religiously about? Well, um, no, I haven't. I don't get hate mail. Um and I think, you know, by the time the students go through an entire semester where they're exposed to the foundations for some of these critiques and, not, and, and don't have, there's not the opportunity to disengage and have a, just a knee-jerk reaction, but have, having to think issues through, uh, then, you know, they are, uh, you know, weighing these debates in sophisticated ways and not just knee-jerk ways. So, um no, I think the, um, you know, even some, though some of the students may grumble about me uh, <laughs> um, behind my back or, you know, somewhere else with each other, um, it, it, I, the response is largely a respectful one. And I try to keep a respectful classroom and try to keep common values in perspective. And, you know, my, my goal, and I hopefully this film doesn't do this or the book, but my goal is not to make people cynical. Uh, about their government as an external entity um, that, that uh, manipulates us. But, you know, to try to clue us in on the power that we have as citizens to be the government and, you know, to enact the, the kind of political change that uh, we would like to see. So, you know, that's my, that's my worst um, fear is that, you know, this breeds cynicism, uh, that, you know, that's, this breeds you know, not systemic thinking, but conspiracy-type thinking, 
or uh, cynical uh, ideas about our relationship to our government. But I think, you know, we have a system that, um, to some degree, uh, we can work in as Democrat, democratic uh, entities, and that we should value that and try to cultivate that rather than, um, rather than drop out. Yeah. Well, that's actually great. I, I was just curious. I mean, I had thought about becoming a teacher myself for that very reason, but, you know, it's, I'd be worried that, uh, you know, something might be deemed to be too controversial and they won't let you teach it. Um, I, I learned a little bit about, uh, there's a film uh, called Higher Learning uh, or something like that, Declining by Degrees, uh, actually was what it was called, uh, Higher Education at Risk, where they talk about how they they don't pay professors for being good teachers. They pay you for research papers or other things that you can add to the, uh, you know, add to the, the the bio of the university you're working for. And that you're actually told that if you fail too many people, it can endanger your job. Have you ever experienced any of that? Well, there's definitely pressures. You know, usually goes by the name of the corporatization of the university, where grant money from external funding agencies, sometimes government, but most often corporate entities are driving education. So you know, the humanities are being turned into um, a wing of advertising and public relations, and they're shrinking in spades. And, um, and the rest of the university is being either turned into a technical school or <clears throat> a research entity that is an arm of you know, some sort of external corporate entity. Uh, so, yeah, I see that. I see the disappearance of the humanities as we once knew them. And, you know, there's still a measure of freedom to teach these sorts of classes, you know, which have no immediate um, tech school uh, applicability, but they teach us how to be good citizens. And I guess the University of Georgia is a land-grant state education institution, and one of its missions is to teach people how to be good citizens and and hopefully I'm, I'm sort of enacting that by asking people to think critically about um, the media's relationship with the military and our place in that uh, dynamic. Well, um, that was pretty much all I had. Uh, GV, do you have any closing thoughts before I give the floor to Roger for any closing thoughts he has? Uh, no, I'd just like to say I'd, I appreciated the interview. It's a great listen. <laughs> I, I know I didn't participate a whole lot, but... It's good to have you on board. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Roger, I wanted to ask you as a closing question, is there anything for the future? Are we ever looking at a sequel or any other films or books you might be writing that you want to tell people about? Well, um, I'm working on a number of articles right now that probably won't be of interest to your audience. But, um, um, I, you know, uh, continuing to write about uh, war and mostly Hollywood film and the, as we discussed earlier, the developing narrative that is coming out of official channels and, and quasi-official channels, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is an interesting one. You know, you mentioned um, how activists and uh, resistance rebellion is being portrayed, and I would argue probably commodified to some degree. Um, uh, so that it becomes an, just like war, uh, a kind of entity for consumption um, that has been uh, kind of castrated and, and uh, um, denuded and turned into a sideshow. Um, 
but you know, those things are still for debate. Um, but yeah, I, I have nothing else to plug. <laughs> if that's your question. Uh, well, but just also but, if there was anything else you were going to be doing in the future, you know, just as a filmmaker or whatever. Well, I am working on one film right now that looks at uh, resistance practices uh, within militant culture. Um, three artists and activists that we could get into this. This would be a long story. Artists and activists that are um, going into games or playing with the internal dynamics of war-themed video games and doing very interesting things on that level. It's going to be called Returning Fire. Um, and it's a, it's a shorter film um, that uh, appears in three vignettes. Uh, but I think it's still very interesting. That sounds great. Uh, definitely let me know when um, you're ready to premiere that. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'll send you a copy. Excellent. Um, yeah, I'm actually meaning to get a DVD copy of your, your films, too. I just haven't... Um, the finances around here have been very tight. I'm going through a bit of problems at home, divorce and things like that have really you know, hit me. But um, in any case, I really appreciated your film, and it's you know I, I added that to my list of other films that have kind of helped to wake me up in that regard. Of, and I I really it it's it's an argument that I get into sometimes with my libertarian friends, as I used to be involved in that group, and they think everything should be privatized, and I I just kind of get to a point where it's like you know they when they when they're scared of the stuff that Orwell was talking about in 1984, they think that they're talking about socialism, and that that you know, system, but I'm almost more afraid of a independent media that is motivated by the amount of profit that it can make by getting into bed with big corporations. I think that we're looking at a, a stage where the, the in, uh, journalistic integrity is no longer in any way a requirement. Um, and it makes me, you know, whereas I don't think it should be state regulated, it almost makes me think that we should go back to because you know, like one of the things they deregulated when they deregulated the media, and they talked about this in uh, Orwell Rolls in His Grave, was uh, was that they deregulated how much one person could own of it. We used to have rules about how much, you know, how many TV stations you were allowed to own, how many radio stations you were allowed to own, so that you couldn't get away with doing something like what we have now, where you, you know, basically now Rupert Murdoch arguably has more control over who becomes president than any American citizen. And if I remember right, he's not even an American citizen. Um, just through controlling what you hear, what you see, you know. And yeah, technically people could, you know, just go outside of that and, and learn what's going on. But it just, in the same way that, you know, Orwell pointed out in 1984, you know, it's, you know, you're fed this truth and, you know, you just kind of go along with it. And especially if you have society agreeing and believing that, you know, that it works, you know, then they're going to continue to eat the spoon-fed crap. You know, and I don't really know what the solution is as long as we're in a monetary system. As long as we look at things like the truth as a commodity that could be bought and sold and modified for profit, I don't know that we'll ever be in a position that we can really trust the media. Um, you know, do you have any closing thoughts about that? Well, you're right that there's been a tremendous consolidation of huge media companies and that other smaller entities are dying off. Especially, you know, we're seeing that right now with newspapers. Newspapers that are providing any kind of independent journalism, and even the bigger newspapers, are going under right now. And there doesn't seem to be anything filling their place. Um, and, uh, you know, prospects look bleak for independent journalism in the future of any sort. Um, but I would urge uh, listeners, and also if you get a chance, uh, to check out a video um, this was an appearance on Now with Bill Moyers on PBS by a couple of um, scholars uh, of media scholars, Robert McChesney and John Nichols, 
And they talk about a proposal that they have for re-enlivening uh, um, independent journalism that relies on a, a voucher system. Um, and uh, um, it's not state-run media, and it's not corporatized media. It's this uh, third way, which uh, is kind of absurd on its surface. Uh, but they make a really compelling argument for um, this uh, sort of uh, uh, voucher system that they uh, that they advocate. So I would urge uh, listeners to check that out. Um, Robert McChesney, John Nichols on Bill Moyers now. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to check that out myself. You know, I have to thank you once again for being willing to come on my show. I mean, although I do have above average listenership for, you know, a blog talk radio show, it, it helps when people who are in positions like you, you know, do activist stuff like you do, you know, help to support, you know, programs like mine as well, because, you know, that allows people to really make that choice for independent media. It's like, you know, it's, and I, I deal with this sometimes. They're, you know, running to different activist groups. You know, they aren't necessarily interested in going on anything that isn't mainstream media. And, it, and then they complain about the mainstream media. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, it's never going to get any better. You know, if people always have to go on Fox News to even hear from you, then the independent media that actually cares about what you're doing is never going to ever get any stronger. Um, and But in any case, uh, this has been a great show, and uh, I really thank you for coming on. And um, I hope you'll check out Iran is Not the Problem. I'm really curious about somebody with your background taking a look at that. And uh, you can you can watch that for free on the Internet, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's a very good film that talks about, you know, how that, that focuses in that direction. I will have that filmmaker on my radio show apparently sometime after the 22nd. They will be available and uh, thanks again for everybody to tune, tuning in. And um, uh, thanks, everybody, for supporting V Radio. You guys are the reasons I do this. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Neil. Uh, say goodbye. Okay, say goodnight, Chibi. <laughs> Good night. Good night, Chibi. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks again. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys with some words from Roxanne Meadows and Jock Fresco. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.